Judgment Studios. The Michelle Obama Podcast is out now on Spotify. This series brings listeners inside the former First Lady's most candid and personal conversations, showing us what's possible when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open up and focus on what matters most. Joining the former First Lady is an array of special guests, including Marion and Craig Robinson, Conan O'Brien, Valerie Jarrett, Michelle Norris, and Dr. Sharon Malone. Episodes focus on relationships that shape us, from siblings and close friends to partners, parents, and mentors, to our relationship with ourselves and our health. Listen free at Spotify.com slash Michelle Obama. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, WNYC Studios. We're diving into a very different type of story. Picture this. It's a few days before Christmas, 1981. 2 a.m. You're driving around town in a stolen vehicle. You are high. And then you hear the familiar sound of sirens behind you. You're being pulled over. Nick Yaris, he remembers the flashing lights seeing the officer walk up to his car. At the time, he's a 20-year-old screw-up living in Chester, Pennsylvania. An addict. A thief. He remembers the officer knocking on the door, then ripping it open, grabbing him by the shirt, lifting him out of the car. Nick remembers what the pressure of the officer's forearm felt like, pushing against his throat, that he was unable to breathe. He remembers pushing the officer's arm away from him. When the officer reaches for his holster, Nick pushes his arm forward again to protect himself. And he remembers the discharge of the gun. No one was hurt. Nick remembers the officer shoving him into the back of the patrol car. The officer looking at him through the rearview mirror. He says he saw the officer compose himself. And then, in a panicked voice, yell into his radio. Shot fired! Shot fired! Officer assist! Help! Help! He's attacking me! He remembers that as the moment that he was doomed to pay for a crime he did not commit. Our story begins with what Nick Yaris thought was the worst day of his life. Snap judgment. Everything was bleak. They dropped the world on me, didn't they? Kidnapping, attempted murder of a police officer, reckless endangerment, possession of a firearm. No way to get anybody to ever believe you. You're a junkie, a thief, and a liar. Sitting in a jail cell, facing life imprisonment, Missing Christmas. And the only thing I had in that cell was a December 16th Delaware County Daily Times newspaper with the front page missing. And there on page three was the caption about the homicide of Linda May Craig. 
mother of three missing, found dead. And then it reported that Linda May Craig was last seen leaving the Tri-State Mall at 4.05 p.m. Her car would be found that night between Delaware and Pennsylvania. The engine was still running, but the doors were locked. Mrs. Craig's body would be found the next morning by two school children walking through a snow-covered car parking lot behind a church. She had been stabbed and dumped there. If you know anything, please contact the Delaware County CID. I read it, put it away. The idea in my head started this way. If I knew something about something like that, I bet you I could get out of here. So in my head, I made up the story. I picked out a man who had robbed me previously. I was told by a guy in my neighborhood that he had died of a drug overdose in the state of New Jersey. I figured, if I told the police that this man committed this murder of an unsolved crime, and that he confessed to me about it, I could get out of these false charges against me. They would let me out on bail, and I could run away. I laid there in my bed for two solid days, telling myself this story. And then all of a sudden, this guard starts talking to me. Had that officer not come up to me right at that moment, I don't think I ever would have done this. Do you ever look at someone's face when they pity you because they look at you and you're disheveled and you look like you're a mess? Well, that officer was looking at me like I was a pitiful mess. I was a 20-year-old drug addict and a thief who was facing life imprisonment, and he had probably seen a bunch of them just like me, wasters, and I was just going to start doing the wheel forever. He called me out of the bed. He was like doing a mental health check. Are you okay? And I said, I have something to tell you. And I start telling him this crazy story. It was like soon as I started it, that was it. I was locked into it. And I started lying more. And he goes running off to get the sergeant and the warden. And it was like a miraculous change. They took me out of solitary confinement, bought me a Coca-Cola, told me I was an amazing person. The warden of Delaware County Prison, he kept telling me again and again what a good thing this was. This is so good, he kept saying. This is going to get you out of all your troubles and we're going to fix things. In 
In April of 1982, I went to trial for the attempted murder and kidnapping of Officer At my trial, terminologies used flew past my ears without me understanding. I had probably had an eighth grade education reading level. My reading comprehension was very low. I was very vulgar. I had no patience for language. I didn't speak correctly. And it was so humiliating to me that I was going through the process of my life being taken from me so ignorantly. Officer was invited to testify first and in very elaborate form told the jury how I took his firearm from him. He said that I had struck him a total of five times, including once had I hit him in the face with his pistol. He had a photograph taken of his hand showing a two and a half centimeter scratch, he said, that proved everything he said was true. And my lawyer was very clever, so he only asked the man one question. If Nicholas Yaris hit you in the face five times, and one of those times was even with a metal pistol, why wouldn't you photograph your face of the damages that were obviously there when your eyeglasses were broken and you were assaulted? An officer was frozen in that moment of realizing he had been caught out. The jury took 15 minutes to decide my fate and found me not guilty of all charges. On the Tuesday morning that I was meant to be released, I was instead put into the custody of two officers who took me to the warden's office. There was no more smiling faces and a receptive warmth. They said to me, you lied to us. They went and interviewed the man who had robbed me previously. He didn't die of a drug overdose. His brother did. The police found out he had an alibi and he got off of drugs. So I was banking on a person being dead that was alive. I was told in no uncertain terms what a liar I was. How could I do this to them? It's obviously because you killed Mrs. Craig, isn't it? And I looked at them like they had lost their minds. I was like, no, 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 it did no. So I was now being charged with the rape and murder of Linda Mae Craig because of a stupid story I made up in a newspaper article. My downfall was my own stupid mouth. When Snap Judgment, the preposterous episode returns, Nick has the book thrown at him for his lie. And wait till you hear what he does to fight back. Stay tuned. Welcome 
Welcome back to Snap Judgment. When last we left, Nick Yaris, he had just discovered he was going to be prosecuted for a murder that he did not commit. The prosecutor announced that he was then going to seek the death penalty against me. The trial for the murder of Linda May Craig was over within three days. I was found guilty and sentenced to death at the age of 21. My parents basically could only come to see me twice a year, on my birthday in May and around Christmas. So when they did come to see me early on, my parents were very distraught. They had a patch on the back of my head that was covering an open wound from me beating my head on the wall. So my mother was getting upset and she excused herself and went to the toilet. My father looked at me and in very honest terms explained the situation. And he said, look, I have six kids and I work. I don't have any power. I can't get you out of here. You're going to have to get yourself through this. Do you understand me? Now, when your mother comes back, you wipe that look off your face and you keep your mouth shut and you do this. So I went back to my cell immediately after that visit and I realized that what he was saying was true. I have to get myself through this. I was going to get through this with dignity. So I knew I had to change things about myself and I decided the one thing I was going to try more than any other to make beautiful about myself was my speaking ability. I took every photograph off that wall of beaches and cars or anything I put a single photograph of myself. I decided that I was going to learn how to speak to that person politely with a mannerism that was worthy of being listened to. It took forever, man. I took the dictionary apart. I built words like you wouldn't believe. I spent hours and days just learning words so I could articulate them. My favorite word is assiduously. The first thousand books took me three years to get through. I kept track of over 9,400 books before I lost my ledgers. I learned that regardless of what I was dealing with in the terms of authority, As long as I continued to maintain my politeness, I had power over them. When I left my cell, I would use obscure words and invite the officer to participate in such things as osculating my face today. And he said, yeah, I will osculate your face today, not knowing that he said he was going to give me a kiss. You know, when I shared your story, um, people were like, he talks very differently. And, and the way that he talks is like the way that somebody writes. 
Whoever said that, that person is very, very clever. They now know my secret. I am good at mimicking the most beautiful authors that I fell in love with, and there were thousands. And then one day I'm sitting there and the guard is going to throw a newspaper out in February of 1988 from this man's cell next to me. Turns to me and he says, here, do you want this newspaper? On the front page section of the science and arts was this big article about DNA evidence. There was no such thing as DNA testing in 1982 when, at the time of my arrest and conviction. As soon as I understood the science behind it, I knew it could prove me innocent. I started shouting, literally, I got the key to my cell in my hands. And a couple of guys started thinking I lost my mind, making jokes with me. I said, you don't understand. I told the guy that sent me the newspaper, I said, Dennis, I could kiss you for this gift, boy. I'm gonna get my ass out of jail with this. And they all thought I lost my mind until I read the article to them. And I said, guess what, boys? Anybody convicted of a crime like this can get out. I didn't hear no cheering because I would find out soon that I would be the only one applying for this science. None of them were. So one year became three years for one test, five years for the second test. I was given finally the right to use a laboratory in California. And then after 15 years of trying, the evidence spills in transit and I lose it anyway. I was then told that there would be no more DNA testing. My efforts had failed. I watched 105 people walk free. I watched men from death row walk free. I watched DNA science developing while I was being cheated out of the usage of it. And the hardest part was knowing I had to keep my word to my father and get through this. Now, how I got through this was my own choice even if it meant asking to be executed. So I said to the state of Pennsylvania, kill me. You want to kill me? Kill me. I have the right, in fact, as the person you sentenced to die to now make you kill me, and you can't back out of it. But the judge, I wrote him the letter asking to be executed. I had been well past the point of caring if anybody believed I was innocent or not. So I came up with this most amazing speech. I decided, as such, that I was going to come up with a rote set of words that were so eloquent that I would be at peace when I uttered the last ones. I wanted to give them the notion of who I was without them having the ability to understand me while forgiving them for their folly, excusing myself from my own and apologizing for not having been a nicer person sooner, and then thanking them for their ability to let me speak. My death speech was based on the neutrino. You see, I, I read 
I read this book that was a science journal, and it spoke about neutrinos and how this particle can pass through the hardest imagined surface that we know of. I don't care if you're a brick wall, concrete, granite, graphite, goes through everything. And I fell so in love with the notion that, that my life was like a neutrino. And I put all my heart and soul into getting it correctly done so that I wouldn't falter when they strapped me down and executed me. I sent my letter to Judge Zhao in 2001, in August, after my lawyers got back to me, wondering why a man who'd been fighting for DNA testing for 15 years now wants to be executed. Then the judge orders to do the testing, even though it broke open in shipping. So when you found out that the judge decided to test the material, even though you had asked for basically the opposite, what was your reaction? When he ordered the DNA testing done, I had no expectations of anything. I didn't want to get on the hope train again. I got angry at him doing that. July 1st, 2003, my lawyer calls and he starts telling me in an apologetic form how for the past six years he really did think I was guilty. And that despite that, look at this, the results are back from Dr. Blake and oh my God, you're actually innocent. I told him I had to get off the phone because I had to call my mom. I ain't got time for this. I swear to God. And I called my mother and she said to me, my God, is it real? I said, yeah, it is, babe. January 16th, 2004, I said goodbye to the prison. Around 2 p.m., I was finally set free. We went to a restaurant nearby, so I nibbled on some bread, and my father asked me to go outside with him. We sat in the cold outside while everybody finished their meal, and he asked me to look around in fascination and tell him what was so different about the world after 23 years. And it came to me. I looked at him and I said, Pop, you know what? There ain't no more hubcaps. He looked and he realized I was right. There were no more fancy Buick hubcaps. None of the beautiful bespoke ones for the Cadillac. None of the Lincoln Continental one with the beautiful design. They were all gone. And he looked at me, he started laughing. He said, son of a bitch, they stole all the hubcaps off me. It wasn't until I finally was set free that I got in a battered old Jeep. I drove up into the mountains and I stood on a big boulder and I was heartbroken that I was going to only have this one experience. And no matter how beautiful I made that moment, it would never be the same. So I stood up and I delivered my death speech. I am like a neutrino, and though I am passing through your lives, no different 
than that neutrino passing from the sun straight through the earth. And I forgave them and did it so eloquently. And I beautifully and perfectly delivered my own death speech and took a bow and sat down and laughed my ass off. Thank you so much to Nick Yaris. You can check out Nick's books, including The Fear of 13 and its latest, Monsters and Madmen, a death row experiment. We'll have links to his books and his website at snapjudgment.org. Big thanks as well to Wolf Graham Memorial Library at Widener University and its reference librarian and university archivist, Jill Boren, for her help. And lastly, big thanks to Nick's former attorney, Michael Malloy. The original score for that story was composed and performed by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Liz Mack. If that story took you somewhere, I've got nothing but good news. See, more Snap Storytelling awaits right now on the podcast. Wherever you got this podcast, the party does not have to stop. You can follow us on the Twitter, Snap Judgment, or if you want to hear what I really think, follow me at Glenn Washington, Instagram. You won't believe how the Uber producer spent his vacation. Snap was produced by the team that never goes down without a fight. Give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Cotton City Miller makes the beats go boom. An assessment, she wards off the gloom. Liz Mack, Fights at Noon, Renzo the Spoon Gorio, Eliza, up to something Smith. Clock Rocker, Adiza Egan, Leon Morimoto checks the rhymes. Shayna Sheely likes the word unduly. Tail, Road Warrior Ducat. Nancy Lopez, she doesn't need Google Maps. Or Jasmine Aguilera has sworn off computers entirely. Even though this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you can mess around, get to reading stuff on the internet. Decide it's a good idea to cover yourself with honey for whatever it is that you're playing at, only to realize that later on, the honey attracts ants. Ants, my friends. And you would still, still, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is WNYC.
from PRX.